When I think about Job, I was, I was thinking about, I was actually thinking about this yesterday when I got back. Uh, Job is a picture of religion without the Bible. Job is a picture, now I want you to think about that. Job is a picture of religion without the Bible. Without the knowledge that God has spoken. Because up to this point, there's no Bible books. There's, you know, this is the first real entree to that whole issue. So the fact that there would be uh, theology within the book of Job, which is maybe um, blatantly incorrect or, or certainly not provable elsewhere in, in the Bible would be expected. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? It's just, this is, this is one of those kind of interesting situations where the book of Job was written without any other revelation of God that we know of. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't any. It's just none that we know of. Now, the fact that they were even remotely close is kind of interesting to me. But Job was written in a time when there was no scripture. There was no book of Psalms. There was no book of Proverbs. There was no historical books. There were no prophets. The, you know, the only one that he had as an example, most likely, was Abraham, if in fact he even knew Abraham. Most likely didn't. Uh, most scholars believe this was probably written just a little after Abraham's day. So it was probably... You know, his, his understanding of God was under the influence, maybe even of the tutelage of the disciples or of, if there were such things, of Abraham beyond Jacob and so on. You know, we don't know. We really, honestly, we don't know. But I do know this, that when the book was written, assuming that we have our dates right, and there's a pretty good chance we do, uh, certainly there was no Bible. That I think we can, we can go without saying. So, since that is the case, I want you to kind of think about this for a second. Could you imagine having a theology without the scripture? Mm-hmm. Just, just kind of give that one a thought for a second. Mm-hmm. Kind of run that one through your, through your brain and let that one kind of marinate. Could you imagine having a theology without the Bible? I've been on Instagram. There's a lot of people with a theology. There you go. Okay. Uh, well, maybe maybe I should maybe I should rephrase it, uh, Matt. I should rephrase it to an accurate <laughs> theology. And what's interesting to me is that the same theology that these guys dreamed up then is basically the theology that most people come to today without the Bible. And that theology is pretty simple. The theology of the Book of Job, certainly of the three guys that were, you know, were were. Uh, challenging him um, but then ultimately we, we see in these, in these chapters in 27 through 31 Job basically adhere, um, pretty much believed the same thing and that theology was pretty simple it was if you do the right thing God is going to bless you if you don't do the right thing God is going to mess with you that's just kind of the theology. So, so if you look at all the things that Job is, is kind of going through here, he's saying, well, look, you know, I took care of the poor, and I, 
you know, shared my wealth and, you know, I had all these things going and so forth and so on, you know, doesn't make any sense to me. Well, the reason it doesn't make any sense to him is because the truth is he doesn't have, he's never had God speak to him. And as long as he's talking, God remains silent, which is kind of interesting. Now, of course, we're going to see here in 38 that, that God does open, you know, some, some interesting conversation up, but when he finally does speak to him, but at the end of the day, and by the way, after 31, Job doesn't speak anymore. It's kind of interesting. He shuts up. I think it's kind of cool. Because as long as we're speaking, no one else can. Look, it's a good example. I'm speaking right now. Y'all can't because I'm taking control of the conversation or whatever. Now, when we, when we look at theology without the Bible, a lot of things can become gospel. Whatever you can imagine. Pretty much, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, whatever feels right, whatever think, you know, whatever seems right, whatever appears right, whatever whatever word you want to use, is what's right. I once heard it said that that uh, perception is reality to the person perceiving it, and so if I perceive that what I'm doing is right, well, then it must be right because to me it's right. Now, I may not have any knowledge of this, but, but at the end of the day, that's kind of, kind of where it is. Let me see if I can give you an example, which I think is pretty obvious to, to most people. And that is, my father was a phenomenal mechanic. He just was. Guy could fix anything. It was scary, the stuff he could fix. And, and so on. But he had this horrible habit of not reading the directions. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm being serious. I'm being honest. I mean, he, he just, it wasn't that my father was not a good reader. My dad was one of the best readers I ever was around. The man could read fast. That was part of the problem. The problem was he could read fast. So he'd skim stuff. He'd look at the directions. And just, okay, got it. All right, no, let's go. I thought that's how you did it. Yeah, exactly. You know, these things, you know, whatever. Now, he never threw the directions away. I'm not suggesting that he was an idiot, okay? But he would use them as a reference. <laughs> now, it's funny because, and I don't mean this to sound weird, but I am the complete opposite, man. I open up a box, of, you know, that we're going to put something together. I lay out all the screws to make sure I got every single screw. I lay out all the boards to make sure I got every single board. I, you know, it's, it's, it drives me. My wife can't even watch. She's just like, yeah, whatever. Okay, and, but, but it takes me longer in most cases uh, to, to figure stuff out than it does actually to actually build it. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, however, I rarely have an extra screw unless they come with extra screws. I rarely have any boards that don't actually get connected and so forth. My dad always had extra screws. It was hysterical. I mean, he was, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they gave us extra screws and so forth. Uh, I'm just going to turn this oh, off. You don't need that. Yeah, we're, we're still having problems in here, so I'm just going to turn this off. Uh, so, having said all of that, that's what we're dealing with here in the book of Job. So as a result, I have never been one to go and try to find quotes from the book of Job that like, I'm going to kind of hold as my, you know, as, as my liturgy. Mm. Just not going to do that. Uh, because... We're talking about theology without scripture, without any kind of an understanding 
of who God is and what he is and so forth beyond what they thought he was. Because prior to this, God had never spoken that we can tell beyond speaking to Abraham. So I think it's important that we start with that as a prefix because the title of the chapter that Dr. Stedman puts together here is uh, The Folly of of, uh, Self-Defense. Folly of Self-Defense is what what he calls this section. Um, I don't believe this is self-defense. This is just what he thought was real to him. This Because, you see, here's the problem with theology. Sometimes our theology is created because of what works. Kind of like with my dad with fixing stuff. You know, his, his understanding of how to fix stuff was because, well, it worked. So if it worked the last time, it'll work again. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty reliable in most cases. You know, I, I, I've seen him fix stuff. And the guy was incredible about knowing what things to take off first and, and so forth and so on. That was because of not necessarily book knowledge, but just because he'd experienced it. He'd gone through it and so forth. And that's kind of how these guys have developed their theology. Well, you know, every other time, I've seen it happen in my own eyes. You know, people um, who did good things, they got blessed. And people that did bad things, well, they got they got persecuted they got they got you know that was addressed you know um, and so on and that I think is really the heart of this section of the book this this these last or the next not only this chat these three four chapters three or four chapters whatever it was five chapters that we looked at here 27 28 29 30 so the five chapters uh, but what we're going to look at next week when we get into um, 32 and 33, and, and, and then as we get into up to 38. Uh, so the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that. But then we're going to see God come in and speak. And that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is God speaking to us. So it gives us the ability to figure stuff out, to be able to determine what is, what is theologically correct and so on. However, even today, most people ignore the Bible. And I'm talking about religious people. I'm not talking about a-religious people or unreligious people. I'm talking about religious people. I'm talking about people that say they have a relationship with God or want a relationship with God and so forth and so on. And so one of the things that Dr. Stedman said in the book, I don't know where he said it, but but I thought it was really profound, is is that, uh, and I wrote it down because it it was just... So powerful. Uh, There are two types of people in the world. Those who have something to say and those with something to say. thought that was really profound. Mm -hmm. You know? Those who have something to say and those with something to say. Most people are the former and not the latter. Most people really don't have anything to say. They just want to talk. And one of the things that I was taught years ago when I first started teaching the scripture by Ray Cohen was never come unprepared. Don't come just wanting to say something. Come with something to say. What is it? And always know what it is that you want to say. So what do I want to say today? I want to say this. I want to say that we need to understand that the Bible is the word of God and we need to put it on a 
on a pedestal. We need to put it above all of our other theologies, all of our other thinking, all of our other craziness. Because the truth is, they've, they're, they're spending a huge amount of time in this book rattling on about a whole bunch of nothing. If, if you really think about it, there's a whole lot of nothing. It's a whole lot of poetry. Which there's nothing wrong with poetry. But it's not going to change your life. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Does everybody see where I'm coming from? Mm-hmm. And so, Can I read something before you Yeah, go, go for it. Because this one really stuck with me. 19, 25, 26, 27. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. Mm -hmm. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. How did he know that? I mean, that's a really detailed description of, you know, what's to come. He probably knew it from from Abraham. It was probably something that that he was shared from from some other forefather or whatever. Uh, or he might have just known it intuitively. Yeah. Now, and, that's, and that's interesting because you can know things intuitively and they not be wrong. I don't, want you to get, I don't want you to get the impression that everything that was written to this point was wrong. That, and, and if I made that impression, I apologize. I didn't mean that. Because that's pretty detailed as to what we're taught in mm-hmm. future sure. writings mm-hmm. and prophecies. Well, that's the challenge that I'm having with your idea, with your uh, theology here, because what I'm looking at in the first chapter, I went back and read it. He said, Job sanctified. And Job burnt, burnt often because maybe his kids cursed God. Mm-hmm. My idea is that where did he get that idea? Abraham. That insight. Yeah. Well, even if but, but you said he might not even known Abraham. Oh, that's true. That's so, possible. So what yep. you said was Abraham, he had no clue who Abraham was. Right. And there is no scripture that could tell us that. But the fact of the matter is that he was doing burnt offerings. Mm-hmm. And the scripture was also said that he sanctified, which means set aside. Correct. Okay, so therefore, when I'm looking at this book of Job, and God spoke, this was just telling the, the, the life of Job from the beginning, but when God spoke, God said, have you considered Job? Mm. So obviously, and Satan said, but you got a hedge about him. Mm-hmm. So something had to transpire. When Job's wife cursed Tell me, Job said, woman, should we not receive good and evil from the Lord? You're talking like an unwise woman. So if there's no Bible, you have to ask yourself the question, well, where did he get this idea? Because we could actually see these other three, they have no clue. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you really look at the lesson, they have no clue who God is. Mm-hmm. But seeing like Job did, because just what you just quoted, Job knew who he was. When we go through uh, 27 through 31, Job said, I did all these things because which was required. I fed the poor. I clothed the naked. All those things Job said in 27 through 31. Mm-hmm. So my, my question would be, or my challenge would be to me, is that somewhere down the line, Job had to, and, and, and here's the thing you talk, God reveals himself. Mm-hmm. So God had to reveal himself to Job at some time. Because that's more than conscious, just your own. Yeah, that's more than just you trying to think of stuff. Right. It had to be, God had to be speaking at some point in time, even though there was no Bible. Just like Abraham. I wonder when Abraham, when God spoke to Abraham, how did he know it was God? Yeah, and and what I would suggest is... that's just my challenge. Yeah, what I would suggest is that there was no, there was, there was a revelation 
of God. It's a, the Bible tells us that there's clearly oral tradition that, that was passed down from person to person and and family to family and so forth. I'm not suggesting there was not a oral tradition. I'm not suggesting that that the message that God gave, for example, to Noah was not was not passed down. I'm not suggesting that the the message that was given to Abraham was not passed down and so on. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying there's no complete revelation. We have the complete revelation of God. Because which is which is really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So so it, it creates a, a situation where we should, but here's my point. This is here's my point. Even with the complete revelation of God, most people still get it wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, most people don't have a personal relationship, yeah. and they have the revelation of God mm. in right. written form. Right. Job, I believe, much like what you're saying, Orlando, that Job had a relationship with God. Yeah. He had that relationship. He he didn't. He wasn't just worshiping uh, whatever of his imagination or you know his conscious concept I believe he actually had a relationship exactly he talks to God I mean he's 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 questioning God mm-hmm. he had a relationship mm-hmm. it just wasn't he just didn't have complete knowledge at least not like we have and and that's why I believe we're going to see as we get into this I almost wish we could just skip over to 38 right now you know because <laughs> where, where, where my head was at but but at the end of the day we're, we're, we're seeing this we're seeing this thing play out and the one thing that we have to recognize is is that without 38 job is a ridiculous book mm. It really is without God ultimately opening up. But I want you to I want you to hear something. God doesn't speak until Job stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He makes that point really strongly at the end. I thought he makes that point very. Yeah, in fact, I think that's the very last word in chapter thirty-one yeah. that did, or, or yeah. excuse me, his his analysis of chapter yeah. thirty-one. Yeah. And <clears throat> so. What is it that I'm trying to bring out here? The the point is is that we do not take the word of God lightly. That's my point. That that that's the point. And I and I would not want to teach that there had never been a revelation of God to that point because that's not true. Clearly, there had been lots of revelations of God, but had there been one which was canonized for us so that we could actually read it and understand it and and dwell on it and study it and so forth, they didn't have that advantage. They were at a tremendous disadvantage. So, to say, so for me to get upset with Job and say, well, you know, he was just selfish or he was just this or he was just that, I, I can't go there because he's working with, you know, with one hand tied behind his back, really. He's got partial revelation. He's got, he's got relationship. He's got that going for him. No question about it. Never deny that. But it's kind of like trying to fix something new with old directions or without directions and without knowledge of those directions. The way you started off saying how many, if not even most people, believe that if you if you do good, God blesses you. If you mm-hmm. do bad, God blesses you. That's a truism still. Sure. That's a tr- and, and it's ultimately the truth, uh-huh. right? So there is, you, you don't discount that like that's not, Oh, no, of course not. I think it's as true today as, and of course, they didn't have the complete knowledge of God through written form and and whatnot that, that we have. And even with it, we're half the time most people don't still know God. Sure. In the church. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I would make that statement that most people don't have a walking personal relationship with God. Well, why is that? Because I think he answers that question. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Why is it that most people really don't have a, a true <coughs> personal relationship with God? I don't think they have the understanding. <clears throat> okay, that's part of it. I don't think they want to confess their shortcomings. Oh, that's definitely part of well, it. It's a submission thing. <clears throat> right, exactly. It's, it's laying your life down before God and mm. being willing to make him master, Lord, exactly. over your life. Yeah. Most wants people to don't want to do that. Yeah, nobody just wants to surrender. You, yeah, just because you come to church doesn't mean you're going to do that. Right. And if you don't do that, then I would challenge just how personal relationship do you really have. So in chapter 28, Job gets into this whole thing about wisdom, and he calls it a quest. He calls it a quest, which I think is a very interesting word. Uh, and he relates it to mining which I found really, and that's why I said to you guys yeah. in my note yesterday, yeah, read 28. Mm-hmm. Read 28. Why? Because 28 is one of the most revealing, mm-hmm. I think, very very much of Job's theology, of his philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so he calls it, he says, he's where can wisdom be found? It doesn't dwell in the land of the living, which would indicate it dwells where? Okay. With God. Right? That's the... That's the land of the unliving. You but that's know? the logic he came up with. Correct. You go to 28 and you listen to 29. Yeah, oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, well, I'm, not, I'm trying to... No, 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 this is good. This is good. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, so, so what, I wrote, what I wrote here is Job's, Job says in his search for why, he's become a quest, or he's begun a quest for wisdom, and he, he equates it to a search for treasure. And here's what's interesting about treasure, because he actually says, what do we equate treasure? Well, gold and silver and those types of things, which the birds and the beasts couldn't care less about. Yeah, for prosperity. Right? But we put value on that. Now, who put value on that? I don't know. There's an interesting article, not article, excuse me, there's an interesting ad that's running on on. On, well, I heard it on the radio yesterday, and I, it's probably on TV as well. But there's this jeweler who says that if you buy a real diamond from him, he will give you a lab-grown diamond for free. And then right after that, I mean literally right after that little blurb I heard, 30-second commercial, whatever it was, 60 seconds, I don't know, whatever it was, commercial you know he says and he says the reason i'm going to give you this one carat lab grown diamond for free is because it's worthless (laughs) it's truly worthless now right after that this is my point right after that there was an ad for pandora and i mean literally right after that uh uh, ad. There's an ad for Pandora. And at the end of the Pandora, it was definitely on TV. On the end of the Pandora thing, it says, all our lab-grown diamonds are of maximum quality. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I, I'm, 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 I'm not quoting it directly. Yeah. But it was so hysterical. Because mm. this guy, this jeweler, is on there saying, 
If you buy a real diamond, when it was created by pressure and by, you know, you know, time, I will literally give you a lab-grown diamond because they're worthless. And then Pandora says, but we're selling them and everything we got. <laughs> uh, who's smarter? I, you know, I, I, I would, I would who, argue, right? Who but, so is who catches? Who, yeah. But who, who puts... Bought, who bought the placement? That's right, right. But, yeah. but, here's what, but here's what's even more interesting to me <laughs> is someone puts a value on natural diamonds which is greater than lab-grown diamonds. Now, I, I have to tell you, in, in honesty, I have never examined the difference. I didn't know there was a difference. I didn't even I know didn't. there was such a thing as lab-grown diamonds before yeah. these two commercials came up. <laughs> but what was hysterical to me was that we had this one guy basically pitching the fact that they're worthless, and another company saying that all of it, proud of the fact that all of their stuff is made with lab-grown diamonds. Well, we've always valued what is scarce. Right. We just do. We, yeah. And I think that goes way back in antiquity. There's a value to what is scarce. Yeah. Or what most people I mean, don't have. They don't value dirt a whole lot. Correct. Yeah, because you, everybody you can buy dirt for two dollars a cubic yard. Right. A cubic yard. Right. Go but, buy a little tiny diamond, and it's you know. But what I think is interesting is, and I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, It is incredible how much gold and silver was around at that time. Yeah. For such a precious commodity, right? I mean, they had a bunch of it. I mean, it was around. These guys were miners, man. They knew how to mine. They knew how to get this stuff out of the ground. It was incredible to me. And when I was reading this, I was thinking about, so these guys were willing... I mean, we talk about mining accidents today. Can you imagine some of the mining accidents oh, wow. in those days? Holy no, no, mackerel. No, no, no. <laughs> you know. There's no trench safety accident. That's right. Yeah, probably not got many safety accidents. But, but so, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. So wisdom, I wrote down, is the answer to why bad things happen to good people. It is not because of sin necessarily. It's because uh, we're all going to suffer it's just part of the gift of this life that we've gotten it's 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 an oddity that's it's something that no one can understand and we don't like suffering so therefore we have to blame it on somebody it's just like you know we have an accident we always have to find out who's at fault did anybody ever think about the fact that it might have just been an accident but we can't go there because, in, and by the way, if we did, then all the attorneys would go out of business and that wouldn't be good, right? That would be horrible. Uh, <laughs> well, Job questions in a couple of those spots why the wicked aren't punished. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah he can't figure that out either. Goes down, yeah. Because he goes, to, actually it was in the last section, he goes down that road of, well, my goodness gracious, you know, all this stuff is happening, you know, and yet the wicked are well, and that's Psalm 73. That's, that's the whole point of Psalm 73. Psalm 73 says, I saw all these people getting away with murder, basically. Getting away with all this stuff and so forth, and I can't figure it out. And my life is miserable, man. I'm dealing with all sorts of craziness. And then he says this. He says, but then I went into the sanctuary of God. And I think it's interesting he uses the word sanctuary. Because sanctuary is exactly as you just said, to set apart. Uh, and then I went into the sanctuary of God, and I understood therein. 
Because mm. everything ends, right? Everything comes to an end in the mortal existence. Which is what he says in 27, right? Is Yeah. In the end, for the wicked, they're separated from God. Mm. Precisely. Over, right? Yeah. So that was a correct, that was a correct theology. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a lot of theology in Job. The book of Job has a lot of oh, theology yeah. in it. Okay. Yeah. And what do we associate with Job? I mean, what do people just say when they speak of Job? Suffering. Patience. Patience. Yeah. The patience. patience of Job. And that's oh, interesting yeah. that that's the moniker we've hung on Job. Because that's not what I see. I don't yeah, see yeah, it at all. No, I, I, I have never seen That's I, secular. I, 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 no, but a lot of people think that is. In the church. absolutely right. They always talk yes. about the patient of Job. The, the suffering of Job is, is a two-edged yeah. sword. Yeah. Because they talk about his patient, yeah. how he yeah. endured, and then the suffering of what he went through. And what the he suffering, yes. Right. Suffering. We get that. Yeah. We're reading so, about that. Oh, my but goodness. The patience yeah. of the patient Job. Of That's Job. an interesting yeah. perspective. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it, was he really all that patient? He certainly wasn't patient with his three friends. No. I mean, these guys I, made these ridiculous... He wasn't patient with, with God. He wasn't patient with God, but, but he was truly not patient with his well, friends. Well, I don't know, because we don't know the <clears> length of time. You two better you, you answer me this, because I'm not sure. We don't know the length of time that Job went through this. Probably. If it was a week, a month, a, a year. A length of time that he went through what? The suffering. The, the suffering that he The boils. Endured. How long the was the third deal? The, the separation. Uh, well, there's no question it was <laughs> a period of time. I, in fact, silence for seven days. I would suggest that it had to have been months after the, the fact that his friends ever came and, and, and intervened. It uh, had to be just from a well, logistical standpoint and so forth and so on. Um, and seven days well, and how, how everybody even found out about it. You know, it wasn't like they had the Chronicle. Correct. <laughs> Correct. How did they hear about his suffering? Right. It wasn't like someone of his men, because he didn't have no <clears throat> when they told him. He didn't have nobody. They didn't have... Uh, yeah. Pigeons, right? Yeah, his you wife know. didn't post it on Facebook. Yes, no, 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 no social media. So, yeah, <laughs> the wealthiest man living suddenly loses everything. The gossip yeah. happens quickly, yeah. right? Yeah. But you got to look yourself up. These people was not in his region. True. That's why they took a while to get here. Yeah, it's the same principle that the wise men or the, yeah. the, the yeah. came to see right. Christ. They followed a star. Mm-hmm. And that would led them to follow Christ. Right. So when you look at a Job, you ask yourself the question: the length of time of his suffering is not scripture. Right. So that's the challenge. And so when I'm looking at that, I'm like, well, we don't know how long Job stayed there and and suffered what he went through. Right. But I know God enough to know that God is not on our timetable. Right. right. But he still had a reverence for the Lord. That's the most yeah, important yeah, part of this whole thing. He never forsook the Lord. Never forsook the Lord, never said no, and so forth and so on. And the last time we were, maybe it wasn't the last time, but a couple times ago, we did did this uh, thing that uh, Dr. Evans called um, Kingdom Man. We did this this series on the Kingdom Man. And in the Kingdom Man, he talks about the importance of understanding what it means to fear God. And... He gave us a definition of what it means to fear God. Anybody remember that? Yeah, take him seriously. Taking God seriously. Exactly. And I've always thought, I had never, prior to reading that book, I had never heard anybody articulate it that way before. But to me, that's powerful. Do you take God seriously? 
Um, because, because sometimes we have to take these, these kind of religious expressions and we have to break them down to something that's meaningful. Um, when you take somebody seriously, you pay attention to them, you listen to them, you value what they do, what they say, and so on. That, that's what taking something seriously is all about. Um, the other thing that's interesting is, is that when you take something seriously, um, you do what other people are not willing to do. Uh, let me give you an example of this. So in the year 2000, I was invited to go to the U.S. Open, which was at Pebble Beach, the tournament, the U.S. Golf Open. Big event. Some people would argue the biggest golf event, certainly in America, maybe in the world, though. Could be one of the biggest in the world. I mean, everybody wants to win it. So there's 156 people that qualify for this tournament. And just before the tournament, they invite all of them to come, and they can practice as much as they want. They can do whatever they want for basically 10 days prior to the tournament, starting on Sunday of the previous week until Thursday of the, when it starts. They have those 10 days. They can pretty much do whatever they want at the golf course. The, golf course is, the U.S. Open golf course is closed to the public, even if it's private. It's closed. And the only people that can utilize the facility are the uh, players that qualified. And they're pretty strict about it. When I say pretty strict about it, I don't know. They're not pretty strict about it. They are ridiculously strict about it. Okay? So, for example, if I'm out there on a Monday prior to the tournament, uh, if I'm a qualifier and I want to take Randy out and play with me, that ain't happening. They take this very seriously. Everybody see where I'm coming from? Yeah, they take this very seriously. They have a very specific way of doing this, and, and you don't violate the rules. And if you do violate the rules, there are penalties for violating the rules. Like you can get kicked out. There's a, there's a pretty good penalty. But there's another part of taking it seriously, and that is are you willing to do what no one else is willing to do? So I was invited to go on the Wednesday prior to the, to the tournament to, to the practice. There's a practice round. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, prior to the turn that are that's open to the public, where you can walk, watch. So I was very fortunate because I have a friend who knows Craig Perry, who was in the tournament, and Craig Perry's daughter, son, and wife got a all access pass, but they couldn't be there because they were in Australia. So Craig said to his buddy hey, if you know anybody who wants to come, I'll give you guys my passes and you guys can have all access and just come and see me when you get there and we'll have a ball together. And we did. We had a ball with Craig. It was just, it was an absolute riot. Okay, I mean, having all access pass, player pass is pretty special. A family pass actually is what we had. Uh, didn't have any pictures on it, so therefore anybody who was wearing it got it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So, uh, so at any rate, to make a long story short, uh, <clears throat> I'm wearing my player pass, or not my player, player family pass, all access pass. Uh, and we get there on Wednesday, and the place is socked in, man. I mean, I'm talking socked in. Like, I could not see somebody within 10 feet of me. That's how socked in it was. And I mean, I had never seen fog like that before, ever. Four cents, by the way. And so we get there, and I could have, you know, I mean, when we're driving down from San Francisco, which is where we were, it was perfect from San Francisco. It was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was flat out gorgeous. We're thinking, this is awesome. 
we're gonna go down and hang out, you know, we're gonna watch these guys play, and you know, we're gonna get, you know, have some dinner, we did that, right? I mean, we had all these thoughts going through our brain, and we make like the turn into Monterey, not Monterey itself, but but into the Carmel area, and we're coming into the coming down the expressway, and all of a sudden, man, it just stops. Not because of the traffic is being so horrible, although it was. It was because no one could see. <laughs> it was that. It was that. So somehow we meander our way and don't hit, you know don't hit another car or whatever. But I'm going. Why in the world are we doing this? You know, I mean this is this is crazy. This is like a total waste of time. But my buddy is like, uh, no, it's going to burn off, man. I've been here in California my whole life. It's you know it's going to burn off. You know, okay. Well, that's that's cool. He knows. He lives here, right? I'm like, you know, it's gonna burn off. No problem. So we're like, okay, no big deal. So we get there, and as soon as we get there, we find Craig, and he's hanging out, and he and he's like, uh, he ain't got anything going on. He is not doing anything. And so it's like, you know, now nah, Craig, you know, do you know, you gonna play? Well, it looks like they're gonna cancel the, or at least they're gonna postpone the practice round and stuff. We don't really know what's going on right now. And so my buddy says, well, you need to get over and hit balls. You know, he said, well, what's the point of hitting balls? I mean, you can't see 10 feet in front of you. So we go over to the players' lounge area, and, and uh, we're just sort of hanging out. And all of a sudden, in the back, in, the, in like a far distance, I hear this crack sound. It's like that. And then another one. About 30 seconds goes by. And another one. And I mean, there's, this is loud. And because we're pretty far away from, from where I think the sound's coming from. I have no idea what's going on. I mean, I literally, I thought, at first I thought it was a gun. Mm-hmm. I, was a little, I was a little jumpy. And then it dawned on me. Golf balls. That, was, that was somebody hitting a golf ball. And I'm like, who in the heck is over there hitting golf balls? You can't see five feet in front of you. You have no idea where the people are and so forth. So now we start meandering to the sound because that's all you can do because you can't see anything. So we're just hoping we don't walk into a tree. I'm telling you, man, this is, this is, how, this is how socked in it was. So we start meandering and then it got louder. But not as frequent, just like every minute or so you'd hear one of those. Bam. And I realized there's somebody over there hitting balls. And he's hitting them hard, whoever it is that's hitting. And this is not a guy chipping. This is somebody out there whacking his driver or whacking something pretty big. Finally, we walk on, on it and we realize that that's the driving range. We finally figure that out, that we're walking up to the driving range. And all the way over on the side of the driving range, I see this kind of figure. It's obviously a caddy. He's wearing shorts and stuff and just standing next to a golf bag. Uh, at least that's what I think, but I'm not 100% sure. So I, we walk up, man, and of course, it's, we had all access passes, so we have the right to go there and stuff. But, I mean, we had to literally walk almost to where, uh, the, as far as I am from, from Orlando, to know who that was that was standing there. And it turned out it was Steve Williams. And Steve Williams at that time was the uh, caddy for Tiger Woods. Stevie. Stevie, they called him, yeah. And uh, walk over and I see this guy. And, 
And so my buddy uh, who's from Australia, who's with us, because there's a guy from California, there's me, there's this guy from, uh, uh, and two guys from Australia. So the guy from Australia goes over thinking that he's, you know, he, he can be buddies with the Kiwi guy. And so they speak the same language, it's just kind of fun. And so he goes over and he asks, and he says, man, he says, what, you know, like, what's going on? You know, first of all, he introduces, you know, he says he's from Australia, and they start chatting a little bit. He says, so what's going on? He says, well, Tiger's hitting balls. He says, well, I can see that, but how does he know where they go? And Steve says, he tells me, this is what he said, he literally said it this way, he tells me he knows exactly where the ball is going just by the sound. He's Tiger Woods. Because he's wow. Tiger Woods. <laughs> Wow. So no one else is practicing. I mean, no one, and I'm talking no one. No one's chipping, no one's putting, no one's hitting, no one's doing nothing except Tiger Woods. I had another experience with Tiger Woods where he was down in, uh, in Miami one time, and I went to this tournament down in Miami, and he was down at the end of the range. This was uh, also out of practice round, coincidentally. And he was down at the end of the range, and he was hitting balls, and, uh, you know, a couple of people are kind of like standoffish, you know, they kind of give him his room. That's kind of one of the things that they do with Tigers. They got to kind of give him his room and so forth. And so I, I, I said, man, you know, how, you know, how long has Tiger been here? He said, I think he's been here about three hours. Best I can tell, he's never hit another club other than the one he's hit. Like, you know, he's hitting nine iron and he just keeps hitting nine iron for like three hours. Hmm. Who does that, right? Who does, who does that kind of stuff, okay? The point is, he was the only one, in my opinion, that decided, I'm going to take this opportunity to do something because I'm serious about this. I am serious about this. Well, it's an interesting story, but that particular week, the U.S. Open week, Tiger won that tournament, in case you didn't know that. Uh, he won that tournament not by two, sh two shots, not by five shots, he won by 15 shots. He was 12 under. The next closest guy was three over. I want you to think about that for a second. Tom Kite, who came in second, the guy who came in three over, uh, said, you know, if he hadn't shown up, been a hell of a tournament. <laughs> 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 By the way, I thought it was one of those great comments, you know. Perspective. <laughs> Perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he took it seriously. You understand what I'm saying? That's where I'm coming from. He takes it seriously. And, 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 and his results are reflective of the fact that he takes it seriously. Now, the analogy back to us, I think is pretty interesting. Because the question is, do we take God seriously? I think Job took God seriously. I really do. He didn't have all the information that we have. He didn't have all the technology. But he took it seriously. In the same way that other people, Ben Hogan, in, in golf was a guy that took it seriously. Uh, Gene Saracen was a guy years ago that took it seriously. These are, but that was before there was all this technology. But they still took it. They took it. Took it seriously. The point is, there's not a whole lot of people that take it seriously. That's my point. There's not a whole lot of people, even even people that call themselves professionals. There's not a whole lot of people that take it seriously. I don't take it seriously when I talk about golf. But I want to take this business of, of walking with God seriously. So people ask me all the time, so, well, you know, Don, why do you spend so much time reading the scriptures? Why do you, I mean, don't, don't you think you got it by now? 
I, I actually got asked that question just the other day. Don't you think you got it by now? I mean, how long have you been teaching? Well, I've been teaching for over 40 years. Okay, so in 40 years, you haven't gotten it by now? And the answer is no. You reveal something every day. Yeah. I still got to work at it, man. I still got to rehearse. I still got to practice. I still got to, I still got to understand what it is. I still have got to search it and so forth. And so Job actually says this in Job 28. He says, the fear of the Lord is wisdom and to shun evil is understanding. It's to take it seriously. And, and to me, that's really what this, this whole thing, uh, is all about. So, you know, when Job took stock of his life here in 29 through 31 and talks about, you know, the, the, his life before the calamity and how good everything was. Well, he was, that's, that's part of taking God seriously is examining where you're at, examining what you're doing and so forth and so on. And so that's what he was doing. He was examining. Now, I don't find fault with that. I, I, I do not under any circumstance. I think that's good. You got to examine the areas that you need to improve, right? If you don't, you'll not improve them. You'll just keep on doing the same old thing and expecting the same old result or expecting a different result. That's not what you're going to get. You can get the same old result. So he's examining himself. He's going through all these things and, and so forth because he sees himself as a godly man. He sees himself as a person with a relationship with God, to, to Randy's point. He sees himself as a godly man. He does not see himself as an ungodly man. He just doesn't. And I think that's good. I don't ever want to see myself as an ungodly man. I want to see myself as a godly man. And I think each one of you do. You wouldn't get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to come here at 7 o'clock in the morning if you didn't think that. Let's be honest. So, so at the end of the day, he sees himself as a godly person. He sees himself as someone who is blessed by God. He doesn't consider it the blessing that he got his, his doing. He really doesn't. This was God gave it to me. And as a result, that's why I took care of the poor. That's why I took care of the, the people that were downtrodden. That's why I took care of, you know, all these other situations. That's why I did it. Because I consider it a blessing. It's just like when I end my, my emails, I always end it with blessing. Because I'm convinced that that's what this is all about. It's all about blessing. So, so God, is, God has blessed us and so forth. And, and even with his, what I would call, limited theological understanding, because he, he had none, which is crazy to say that. I'm clearly he had bunch probably more than most people ever so so i'm saying i'm saying he had this but he had a limited because he didn't have it all he didn't have complete revelation of god god hadn't spoken to him yet he's going to get that speaking here in a minute but but it you know comes comes back to that and so he he talks about those and then he moves to the present i think it's in 30 he moves to the present and in and in the present he he now is baffled and, and he really is legitimately baffled because he's sitting there going, well, golly, everything was going along so good. <laughs> I and I wasn't taking advantage of it. I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything inappropriate, you know. And uh, he gets into this really interesting mindset of, of, what's, of what's going on. And he cries out to God, but God doesn't answer him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cries out to God. God doesn't answer him. And this is the problem with trusting in the stuff you do rather than the grace of God. Is when you trust in the things that you do to, uh, to, to solidify your relationship with God, it's all about you. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, we had this interesting conversation about losing your salvation a few months back on a Monday. I remember this. And if you can lose it, then you had something to do with it. That's just, you know, that's just a fact. If you had, you know, if you, if you didn't have anything to do with it, then you can't lose what you didn't have anything to do with. And, and, that's, and that's a fascinating, you know, kind of, a kind of uh, a thing. But the problem with good works really is this. It is, are you ever really good enough? At what point are you good enough? It's a really challenging question. But you see, that is the natural theology of persons, is, is we think, because there's good is good. That's what the word means, bueno. You know, it's not not bad. It's good. And we typically measure our goodness compared to others. No doubt. No doubt. Because we can't measure it to God because we can't see God, which, by the way, is why God's going to ask him, well, where were you, Job, when I did this? And where were you when I did that? I'm not as bad as he is. I'm yeah. not as bad as he is. I'm, I'm very good compared to this guy and this guy and yeah. that guy. The guy called you on the prophet. <laughs> right. So, so Job develops a theology, which is based upon what he feels and what he experiences and what he knows as best he possibly can. Unfortunately, it's without a complete set of directions, but nevertheless, he's, he's doing the best he can under those circumstances. And he gets into this really interesting thing in 31 where he starts now comparing this to fornication, which is fascinating to me. Like, I, I haven't morally failed. You know, that's a pretty obvious one and so forth. I've morally failed anybody and so forth. I haven't had an affair that created, you know, this, this, this kind of a, you know, scary thing. Uh, and he thinks that since he's never failed morally, that God did, well, that, that should count for something. Mm. Wow. Because evidently that was a problem of pretty blatant problem I would guess in those days or he wouldn't have brought it up by the way it's still a pretty blatant problem in this day (laughs) always has been okay so so he thinks that he's never failed morally well that should count for something he thinks because he treats people you know with respect and 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 dignity and so forth which obviously a whole lot of people didn't do that either well that should count for something see he's starting to count up his you know more plus signs than there are minus signs that's that's kind of what's going on here hey Don not just that he didn't have a category for Satan Oh no, that's right. Yeah, mm. right. Which is that's what I, which is what I was just going to get to. Okay, and that, and so he, so he comes to him, and and so he thinks that God is doing all this. Mm-hmm. You see, he's put God in a box mm-hmm. because he doesn't understand that there's an adversary. So therefore, anyone who's doing the attacking, well, then it must be God because this is a supernatural attack. Mm-hmm. And see, and since he doesn't see it as anything more then God is the only one supernatural. He doesn't understand the presence of this evil one. And, and so therefore it must be God. You see, you, you see how this is all just sort of works and kind of filters down and so forth. But he's missed the point. And the point is that God is not in a box. He doesn't live in a box. His ways are not our ways, neither are his thoughts our thoughts. He doesn't live in a box. And he has he knows the beginning from the end. He knows everything about what's going to happen. He knows where it's at. And that's why the title of the book that Stedman wrote was Let God Be God. Mm-hmm. You see, we don't let God be God. 
This is the problem that they, that he had. But I believe it's also the problem that we have because we think we've earned God's blessing. That's the problem. And we have not earned anything. The only thing that we have is a gift. And so Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, deals with that. And so when he, when he wrote the book of Romans, he said the gift, the charis, the gift, is different than the transgression, which, by the way, is, is the word uh, per, uh, uh, peripatoma. Peripatoma in Greek is a swear word. It's interesting. So he says the gift is different than the transgression. The transgression is what you do thinking you're doing the right thing, actually, in most cases. Because nobody wants to do the wrong thing. I want you to get that into your brain. This is, I don't think anybody thinks that when they're doing something stupid that it's the wrong thing to do. I think, Don, there's a lot of people out there well, maybe so once they get when once they get going though, I'm talking about. But I'm talking about right at the beginning. I'm talking about right at the beginning. Okay, when 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 we start messing around with stuff that's inappropriate and so forth, we don't think it's that big a deal. Yeah. Well, children. It depends depend, depend on the situation. I, I, again, I'm talking even from the beginning. Okay. For instance, and I'm gonna challenge that because, for instance, I know I'm married. Uh-huh. I know I'm married. I know I have a wife. If I start wanting to have an affair, why is I'm hiding it? Because I know it's wrong. Right. But the only- so therefore, from the beginning of right. me conceiving this lust, because mm-hmm. we talked about this in another Bible study, when I conceive lust, that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right? So therefore, I know it's wrong. Yes. I'm going a lot earlier in the situation. I'm talking about when you're 12. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm thinking entirely. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I understand. Thinking, but you see, you're thinking about it after there was already my experience. I'm no, thinking. I'm even thinking about my kid. Because, I'm, and I'll tell you why. When my kid, when and I say, when I was little, I had this thing in my refrigerator or my drawer that my little girl, she can go in the drawer and get it to feed herself when she ain't got to come and say, can I have? Right? Now, if I say, don't get this, she's three. Mm-hmm. Right? She go in the drawer and get it, take it in her room, <laughs> and eat it. And she, oh, yeah. you, you get what I'm saying? My yeah. point being, and she hides it. And she she hides it. So therefore, she already, that's what sin is. When we, when we take on the nature of Adam, it's already there. Right. But what I'm saying is, is that at the beginning of every single thing, I, I'm completely convinced of this. I'm completely convinced that when Adam was first tempted, he didn't think he was really doing anything all that bad. And then he realized he had. Well, he had How voices you? telling him. No, 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 okay. no, no. We're going to go. We got no. to deal with this. How do you get that? <laughs> How do you get that? Because it, it, I don't want to debate you, but do, how do you get that? Because from the beginning, God spoke to Adam said, don't eat. See him, Adam. And, uh, and he said, don't eat. And Adam ate uh-huh. because he gave it to him. Yeah. But the point I'm going to bring out is Adam had such a relationship with God before Eve even came into existence. Right. So he had a relationship. So when, when he ate, he immediately knew. Right. And that's the, but Don't all of this, this, all of this is about. No, it's not about woman. It's about him. No, no. This is all about the problem, though, with living a life where things are right or they're wrong all the time. 
And that's really what we're dealing with in the real world. We deal with this thing of this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. And when we're looking at these things, even when something is wrong, I think the natural mind of people initially is that we don't want to do what's wrong, but we do it anyway because we're still, because we have this lust. That's what, that's what chapter 7 of Romans is all about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have this, this, this initial thing of, I don't want to really do this, but I still find myself doing it. And, and it's this battle that we have within us that's always going on. It's a fierce fight. And the problem that we have with this is that we don't understand how God intervenes in all of this. Mm, okay. And because we don't understand how God intervenes in all of this, we start making things which are bad seem like they're okay. Can, I, I heard it. One thing, you know, you have your conscience, your devil, your angel, whatever, whatever. on your shoulder. Yeah, on your shoulder. And, and this starts out early where you have your conscience. And the more you don't listen to your conscience and do wrong instead of right, your conscience becomes numb. Dull. And right. it's dull, and then it's wrong. You can't rely on it anymore because you've right. dulled it, and it yeah. doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a knife that's no longer sharp. Yeah. Yeah, and and so so this is this is where that's why I'm saying at the very beginning of things, I I, I don't believe that's you know that's really an issue until we start getting experience, and it, and that experience can by the way be at four years old, could be at three years old, could be could be at any age, it really doesn't make any difference. Uh, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's by accident that the first word that every kid ever learns is what no no, no. <laughs> right, Maddie? Have your kids did your kids learn any other word besides no first? <laughs> I. Mine did. What's that? Mine. Mine. Oh, that was my niece's. That was my niece's word. Yeah, and hers was mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, the point is, is that all of these things lead to this thing. But here's here's where Job is at. Job wants to do what's right, but it's like Romans chapter seven. But he still finds himself falling into the problems, and this is why he's questioning. Well, did I do? Well, maybe I did do something. Maybe you know, maybe I you know, because he recognized. And one thing intuitively he recognizes is that he can screw up. He gets it, okay. He, he gets it, and and I'm not suggesting Job is some horrible person because he's not. Clearly, he's he, not. He has screwed up, but he has screwed up. But he's repented. Yeah, he's asked the Lord's forgiveness, and he's also screwing up now, and he just doesn't know it. He just doesn't know it because he has incomplete revelation. You see, at the very beginning of this study, weeks ago, we said the difference between Job and us is that we were got the peek behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. We got to see the conversation between Satan and God. We got to see that. We got to understand that Satan is involved, that God is involved, that the attack is not coming from God, but it's coming from Satan. We, we got to see it. So we have all that as... See, unfortunately, he, he doesn't have he didn't have that peak. Yeah, that's good. All right, but we did. So we're we're sitting here, and that's why it's very easy for people to look at this and say the patience of Job. Well, yeah, you know, you don't you you know what's going on. He don't, you know, he don't know what's going on, and so all of this to say that Job's argument is that he thinks he's earned God's blessing and he hasn't. No one has. God does it out of charis, not because we don't transgress. 
It's not because we don't transgress. It's because God gives it freely. And so Paul says, he says the free gift, the charis, is different than the peripatoma. It's different. They don't have anything to do with one another. The transgression has nothing to do with the free gift. That's what, that's what Paul says. Because if you have to justify yourself, it's not justification. That's the weird part about that, that whole idea. You cannot justify yourself. You, 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 there is no justification that you can, you cannot justify yourself. I'm just talking about like in a court of law. You can't, you can't justify yourself. It has to be done by someone else. And that's what's going on here. So his understanding of the mediator, Steve, is, is, is real. No question about it. He understands he needs somebody to help him and so forth. He just doesn't know how to put all the dots together. And that's what God's going to do here shortly. So anyhow, well, we're going to end on that. Just, you know, I want you to hear that. That That's, to me, one of the... One of the um, before you wrap up, yeah. I'm still stuck with what, how you started today about Job didn't have the benefit of having the Bible. Mm. I mean, I look at my life. I didn't... The Bible existed, but not for me. I didn't mm. know... I didn't read it. Mm. I went to church, but if anything, I probably had bad theology. Right. And so most of my life... I didn't have either. Then I started to study the Bible, which helped fix the bad theology. Somewhat, probably. I still was, <laughs> somewhat. I still was not serving God. I was serving my own ego. Mm. And then eventually I made the transition to give it up to God now. But this story starts out with God saying, have you considered my servant? God wouldn't have called me a servant because I wasn't serving him. Even though I had the Bible and started to study mm. that, got my theology lined up, I don't think God would have said that about me, right? So it, yeah. this story starts with the assumption that Job is, God is his Lord, and God refers to him as his servant, not just this guy, right? And I think it has, I think it has to do with one thing, and we just talked about it. Job took God seriously. Yeah, he yeah. had a relationship. He had a relationship. God would never have described him as blameless or complete mm -hmm. or balance right. or any of that had he not had that relationship. And by the way, but he had all that without having the benefit of the Bible. He did, but but and and what I think is fascinating about that is simply this. He had a desire. He had a desire. And to me, the greatest disqualifier is a lack of desire. That's the greatest disqualifier for for anything, by the way. You want to be a great golfer? You better have a desire. You better want it. Someone else can't want it for you. You want to be a great whatever? Fill in the blank. I don't care what it is. Great. Fill in the blank. You got to have a desire. You got to be willing to do stuff that no one else is willing to do. You got to learn it. You got to study it. You got to. He was ready to do that. He was there. He was there. Unfortunately, it was. Not totally complete because he didn't understand both sides of the of the spiritual realm, and so as a result, God said, "Well, you know what? I'm just going to try to help you out here, Job." Well, and remember too, the Bible is, is isn't really primarily for academic study. No. Okay. I mean, it does teach us a whole lot, but it is often the way God speaks to us is through Scripture. Right to me, that's the primary benefit of reading Scripture is God speaks to us through His Word. I don't believe that's the only way God speaks to us, but it starts there. Wow, yeah. it just came on. 
How about that? Let there be air. Let there be air. What about so, the proximity of, and I don't know the timeline, but you know, when a story, when someone witnesses a miracle, and then the story gets passed on and passed on, I mean, how much time transpired? Let me say it this way: like, I, I often think about if I was back then and I watched those miracles, mm -hmm. and there was only so many documented. From what I understand, we'd feel like libraries if they were all documented, right? Mm. All the miracles. I mean, those three years, he did so many miracles. Mm. And how far was it from that that word of mouth being passed down? And maybe that's part of why it was so real. So the biggest part of the Bible, the biggest part of the Bible is, is the historical record of what happened. That is the biggest part of the Bible. I mean, if you read, if you, as, 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 uh, um, many of us do on a regular basis. We read the Bible just constantly. <clears throat> I know uh, Randy's in this thing where he reads the Bible every year. He's got it actually to a calendar. I don't do it that way, but but there, you know, he's got it in a, in a calendar kind of form, <clears throat> which I think is awesome, by the way. But if you but if you spend time reading the Bible, you realize very quickly that it's really a book of history more than any other single thing. It's a it's a book of how God dealt with fill in the blank. It's a, it's a book about how God dealt with Adam. It's a book on how God dealt with Noah. It's a book on how God dealt with Abraham. It's a book on how God dealt with Job. It's a book on how God dealt with Isaiah. It's a, good, it's a book about how God dealt with whoever. That's what it is. It's a play. Wait, I'm thinking back. I just thought about what I said. Job was way before Jesus did all his miracles. Oh, yeah. What am I saying? Never mind. No, 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 no. The point, the point, the point is, too late there, were probably, there were probably other things that God did miraculously, too. You know, he did a thing called Noah and the Flood. You're just, just oh, reminding you. A little little miracle there. And so, yeah. But but at, but here's here's the deal. And we got to end because it's sorry. 15 after. Obviously, uh, you got our attention, so we ain't about to move. <laughs> yeah, and, and Maddie had to go to work. So, <laughs> and this Maddie's got to go to work, too. But, but, but I, I want to end it on this, is take God seriously. Say to God, I want to do that. I want to take you seriously. I want to, I want to know you. I want to know about you. I want to feel it. I want to get it. I want to understand it. I want to, I, I just, I want to be enveloped in what you're all about and that's not just about knowledge although that's part of it it's about understanding that he is at work and I have a very interesting experience I had a very interesting experience years ago where I met a guy who wrote a book called Experiencing God actually I met his son his son's uh, co-counsel or co-writer in the book I met his son and, and got, a, got a picture of him in my phone and uh, one of the things he said in that book, which has always resonated with me, was if you want to experience God, you've got to be where God is at work, not the other way around. God's not going to come to you. You need to come to God, which is a whole different way of looking at it. You've got to go where God's at work. So if you're hanging out over here where God ain't, you're not going to get a whole lot. Okay? But if you're over here where God is at work, well, you're going to get a whole bunch. And so I leave you with that. And so um, let's, uh, let's get out of here and... Yeah.